Good evening. Welcome to WCF on this wonderful evening that God's given us. Um, thank you for being with us. We're glad you're here. We're glad if you're joining us online, welcome. And we're going to jump into worship here in well, just a moment. We serve and uh, worship a good, good father. We have a father who's perfect, who's good, who's um, who loves us beyond what we can even think about. And so uh, this, this evening, I invite you to stand and let's uh, begin by singing.
giving us this day, by allowing us to go to work, stay at home with these kids.
the name of our great God, mountain shake and crumble. At your name, the mountain shake and crumble. Yeah. 
name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a powerful name it is. Nothing can stand against. What a powerful name it is. The name of Jesus. What a powerful name it is. The name of Jesus. What a powerful name it is. The name of Jesus. Running after, it's running after me with my life. 
Thank you, Lord, that uh, your goodness does run after us. Lord, there seems so many times in my life where I've gone through difficult times, and I wonder where your goodness was, but later I could see that it was running after me all the time. Lord, I just want to thank you for your faithfulness. You've always been so, so good. Father, guide us here tonight. Lord, help us to apply your word. Lord, build us up with it and equip us. And uh, Lord, prepare us. And Father, also tonight, as we are here, we want to pray for Shelby. Lord, we uh, just pray that you would be with her during this time of delivery. We just pray, Father, for the whole family. We just pray, God, that uh, there would be a healthy baby born and a healthy mother to receive that baby. So, Lord, we lift them up in your care. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good evening. Good evening to you those online as well. And it's always uh, such a privilege for me to stand before you and uh, teach you God's word or share God's word with you. Uh, I think that God tells us in the word of God that we don't need a teacher because we have the Holy Spirit. But he does give those with spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ. So anyway, it's always a privilege to be able to do that. Um, I did get an email from uh, Pastor Kerry at 443. Let me read that to you. Uh, talking about Shelby, she's at nine, but doing good. She has an epidermal for pain. Doc thinks around seven, maybe before she can start pushing. She is progressing super slow. So anyway, you can keep them in your prayers, please. So it's just uh, uh, seven o'clock now. And uh, so anyway, maybe any time now we're going to have us a baby. All right. So just keep praying for her and praying for the family. Uh, <clears throat> Carrie had called me yesterday, and, uh, you know, Carrie's one of these guys that's like a solid rock. You know, he never gets upset or excited. Well, yesterday when he called me, he was kind of upset and excited. <laughs> First time I've ever seen him that way. And anyway, he was saying that they were going to take her in, and um, they were going to um, induce the labor at 5 o'clock. And so, um, anyway, just keep them in your prayers, please. 
Well, tonight we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So uh, it is our um, tradition, I guess, a good tradition. Not all traditions are bad. Some are good. They all had a good start. But it uh, is our tradition that we stand to honor God while we read his word. So this is the word of God. And if it's God's word, then it has the same character. And we should give the same respect to God's word as we do to God himself. So First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, as to the time and seasons and epics, brethren, we have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, you are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are also doing. But we request you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit and do not despise prophetic utterances. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you. And he also will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You may be seated. <clears throat> now, of course, chapter 5 comes after, what? Chapter 4. And so if we want to understand the Bible, we have to read it in its context. So let me uh, just go back up into chapter 4. Verse 13, to kind of give a, the context of this passage. Evidently, there were those in Thessalonica. Now, let me also just talk a little bit about the church in Thessalonica. Uh, if you look in the, uh, Acts chapter 17, you get some history about this church, about how Paul established it, how he was there just a very short time. I think probably less than two months. And the Judaizers came and um, they 
ran him out of town, and he had to escape for his life. He went to Athens. But what I, the thing that I think is very um, significant here is the very short time that he was at that church. And as we look at the things that Paul wrote to them, we see that they had a strong theology, even though they were only a few months old in the Lord. And if you look at the context of the book of Acts, you find that this letter was written perhaps weeks after he left the church. So this is a very, very young church that he is writing to. But in, um, in chapter 4, evidently because of what he says here, not because we have any other sources, but there were some people in that very short time who had died and gone on to be with the Lord. And they obviously had some questions. Well, what about those people? So in chapter 4, he addresses that in verse 13. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. In other words, those who have passed away, who are believers, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. So those who don't have Christ have no hope about what lies beyond death's door. Verse 14, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in the Lord. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So that is the context of chapter 5. So we, go, we get to chapter 5, and he says, Now, as to the times, and can anybody tell me how to pronounce that word? Is that epics or epochs? <laughs> how do you pronounce that word? Epochs? That's what I thought. Okay. So now, as to the time and epochs, brethren, we have no need of anything to be written to you. Now, isn't that amazing? Here are these Christians, maybe three, four months old in the Lord, and they don't need to be taught about eschatology because they've already been taught by, by Paul. Isn't that something? I, I tell you, these Christians grew up fast, didn't they? So anyway, he says they have no need for them to say, to, to, uh, say anything. In Acts chapter 1, <clears throat> uh, speaking of this word epochs, he says, so, even, or so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it this time that you restore the kingdom uh, to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed in his own authority. So the word epochs or epics or however you want to pronounce that, I don't know. Uh, it is, um, uh, there's really no English equivalent to this word. And um, it, it's, it basically means an appropriate or opportune time. And so what he's saying is that it's this season. Um, it's this time that God has foreordained these events to take place. He says, we don't need to write to you about when that happens. And he tells us why. He says, um, he goes on to say in verse 2, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them. Suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child. That's kind of relevant to it, isn't it? They will not escape. So anyway, they already know full well that this day will come like a thief in the night. When does the thief come? He comes at the time that you least expect him to come. He plans it that way. 
I mean, I think every thief is kind of stupid, you know, but they're not dumb, dumb, okay? So they're not going to come when you expect them. You know, Jesus is so much smarter than any thief. When he comes, he is going to come at the most least expected time. You know what I think? I think the rapture is going to take place. And I think that, um, that the beast, the Antichrist, is going to take credit for that. And uh, he is going to say to the people, he's going to say, I got rid of those pesky Christians. Those people that are always condemning you and saying that you're going to be judged and that you're sinners. I got rid of them for you. So now I promise you this great time, this utopia is coming because we got rid of all those bad Christians. And so peace will be, they'll be saying peace and safety. It'll be the most least expected time. It will be like a thief coming. They'll never expect it to happen. And it will happen. Now, the day of the Lord is not just one specific day. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment, uh, a day of justice. Uh, it's a day of restoration. It's a day that God intervenes into mankind. Uh, in the past, there have been several days of the Lord. Let me read to you in Joel chapter 1. Uh, verse 15 and then 2 through uh, 11 through 15. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great for strong is he who carries his word for the day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yes, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Now, this was... Um, Prophecy was given to um, the people at Joel's time, and it was the time that he was warning them that the Babylonians were going to come and take and judge them. It was going to be a day of the Lord. But if they would repent, then uh, the day of the Lord would not be a day of destruction. So that was a day of the Lord. Uh, there were other passages of scriptures as well. In First Peter chapter 3, uh, the great day of the Lord um, in verse 10 says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works shall be burned up. So if there's coming a future day of the Lord, probably the last day of the Lord in human history, when God will destroy the present heaven and earth and he will create a new heaven and a new earth. And that is called the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord is not one specific day. It is a time of God's intervention into human affairs where he acquits the righteous and he judges the guilty. Uh, in Amos chapter 5, verse 18 through 20, it says, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light, as when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or goes home and leans his hand against the wall and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? You see, the people in Amos' day, they were looking for the day of the Lord that he would come and deliver them from all of their enemies. But yet he tells them here that even if they escape when they go home, 
the day of the Lord will find them there in judgment as well. And then Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12, it says, For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be debased and will come just like a thief in the night. So again, a thief comes at the most least expected time. When everybody is asleep, when the alarms are off, when everyone is at peace, And uh, Jesus says, when they're crying, peace and safety, so the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Verse 3, and while they were saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Uh, In Matthew chapter 24, it says, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, for then there will be great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, uh, nor ever will. So the day of the Lord will come at the least expected time when people are crying out peace and safety, when it looks like that we have utopia, finally, when everything is good and, and great, and now we have this great leader who's going to deliver us from all the world's evils. He'll bring in utopia. That's when the day of the Lord will come. That's when the tribulation will begin. So it says it will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. The only way that, um, that a pregnancy can go away naturally is for the baby to be born. There's no way of, um, uh, of escaping that. that um, and it's the same way with the day of the Lord. It will come. And there will be no escape for those who are not prepared. Uh, when he says here, they will not escape, that's a double negative. What he's saying there is he's saying, by no means ever possible will it be possible for them to escape. It's just not possible. If they're left behind at the rapture, there is no escape for the great tribulation. There is no going back for a reset. There's no do-overs. When the rapture takes place, then the tribulation will come. And those that are left behind will go through this great tribulation place. He says here, there will be no, by any means, any way that they can escape. Verse 4. But you, brethren... So now he's turning the clock. He's turning to a different audience. He says, but you, brethren are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. So believers are not in darkness. They're born again. They march to a different drummer. They have a new life within their lives. The old has passed away and the new has come. So you, brethren, are not in darkness. You are in the light. You're not in the darkness that this day would overtake you because you're not in the kingdom of darkness. In Colossians 1.13, it says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us into the king of his beloved son. That is a miracle. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you became a new creature. You stopped becoming a member of the kingdom of darkness and you became a member of the kingdom of his dear son or a kingdom of light. You were changed, transformed. Um, 
a miracle took place. You were reborn within your lives so that you no longer are children of darkness, but now you're a child of light. So uh, verse five, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. You are not of night nor of darkness. The day of the Lord is a day of darkness for those outside of Christ, but the uh, day of light to those who are in Christ. Verse six. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Because we're not of the tribe of darkness, then uh, we have a different mindset. Uh, The idea of being sober as opposed to being drunk, it speaks of the difference of having the mind of Christ and not having the mind of Christ. So having a sober mind literally means to have a saved mind. Same word, sober and saved, uh, come from the same root word in Greek. So uh, as believers, you have a saved mind. You have a different way of thinking. You see, you have spirit life within you. Whereas before you came to Christ, you were spiritually dead. You were in darkness. But now we are in the light because we have Christ in our lives. We've been born again. We've been given a new mind, a sober mind, a saved mind that that can think in spiritual terms. Um, The natural man... He doesn't understand the things of God because he doesn't have spirit life. He doesn't have a saved mind or sober mind. But when that miracle took place at rebirth, then we got a saved mind. We started thinking a different way. Instead of God being our judge, he became our father. We have a whole different relationship with God. And it's caused by the miracle of rebirth. So old things are gone and new things have come, as the scripture says. So we are not of the darkness. Verse 7, for those who sleep do, do their sleeping at night and those who get drunk get drunk at night. So um, um, what is it about a drunk that makes him different than a sober person? For one thing, he's no longer able to see things realistically. Uh, he doesn't see what's really relevant in his life. The alcohol changes him and dulls him so that he doesn't see what's really important in life. And you see, a similar thing happens to people who are not saved, is they don't really know what's relevant in life. They are thinking short-term in this life. They don't think about their life as far as it, uh, how it, it, The implications of that for eternity, because you see, they have a darkened mind. They can't think in those terms. They are dead spiritually. They have not been born again. And let me just pause here for a moment and just say this. Becoming a Christian is not just a logical decision. Becoming a Christian is a miracle. It is something that happens inside. It's not about necessarily what we believe, but who we believe in. It's not about understanding. It's about a relationship. When we come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, basically we're submitting to God and saying, God, you're the boss. I'm guilty. I deserve to be punished, but I believe that Jesus was punished in my place. And I accept him as my righteousness. When when that happens, basically we're submitting to God. You know, you cannot... Become a Christian unless you submit to him as Lord. You see, the whole world is in rebellion against God. But when we become a Christian, it's where we finally come and we surrender. We give up. 
I'm no longer the Lord of my life. You are Lord of my life. I am no longer God. I'm no longer capable of making decisions in my life and leading my life. You are the Lord of my life. I submit to you and your authority. I no longer rebel against you. I want you to come into my life and change me because I certainly cannot change myself. And so God comes into our life and he changes us. He puts his spirit within us. He gives us a saved mind. We are born again. It's a miracle. Verse 8. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet of salvation and and the hope of salvation. So he tells us here basically to put on the armor of God because we are different people. Um, We are of the day. Let us be sober. Let us think about life in terms of God in charge of our lives as God involved in everything that we do as a God who's going to take us to be with him for eternity. As Jesus is our best friend, as talking to God every day, that we come into spirit life and we live with God. And we'll talk about that more later. Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. As I look at this passage right here, I believe that's why Christians will not go through this great tribulation period. It's because we're not destined for wrath. And that is called the day of God's great wrath. And we're not destined to that, so I believe that's why the rapture comes first. And I believe that's why the, um, the Antichrist will use the rapture uh, to make the whole world believe this lie, that he's the one that is responsible for getting rid of these pesky Christians, you know, that are always telling us that we're, you know, what's wrong and that, and that we're condemned without Christ. And, you know, and, and he will deliver or say he's delivering the world from us. And so at that time... Um, uh, the tribulation will start. But anyway, God is not destined for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice that all three words that he uses to describe who Jesus is. First of all, he's Lord. He's the boss. He's the master. He's the creator. He's God. Secondly, he's Jesus. The word Jesus means uh, he saves. He's our savior. And the word Christ, uh, that's not Jesus' last name, by the way. You might have thought that, but that's not his last name. All right. Christ means the anointed one. It talks about what he has done. He is the anointed one who came from God to bring us salvation. He is that chosen one. So whenever you read Jesus Christ, think of it in those terms, that he is that special one that God sent to this earth to redeem us, to save us. There is no other savior There is no other way to get into heaven except through Jesus Christ. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the one that God sent to provide salvation for us. So God is not destined for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus, the anointed. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, it says, And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free uh, man hide themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of wrath has come. And who is able to stand? So God is the one who is saving us from that great day of, of wrath. We are not um, destined for wrath, but for salvation. Uh, Verse 10, talking about Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, 
verse 10, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Um, So there's the promise we have of that blessed hope. You know, we had a funeral this last week, and, um, you know, I think of the blessed hope that we have. That death for us is not death, but it's the doorway into life, into eternal life. And um, he is that blessed hope. So whether we are awake when Jesus comes or we've already passed through death's door, uh, we live together with him forever. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We have that blessed hope. There are those who have no hope, but we have that blessed hope. Um, <clears throat> Speaking of that, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says, For the momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So, um, you know, the things that we cannot see, those spiritual things, they're more real than the material things that we see around us. Verse, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it goes on to say, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, that is our body, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, an eternal one in heaven. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. I think most of you are near my age. Some of you are not. But when you get to me my age, every day when you wake up, I, at least I do. I groan. <laughs> I have aches and pains that just came somewhere out of the night and attacked my body. And it happens every morning until I finally get things stretched out and I can move again. So anyway, uh, our bodies groan. Uh, <clears throat> verse three, inasmuch as we have put on, uh, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed. So that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Verse 11 goes on to say, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are also doing. Um, These are encouraging words for us as believers. Uh, We need to be encouraged. Anybody here get discouraged? Do you? I mean, you look around us to see all the stuff that's happening. I mean, you see just crazy things going on around us today, things we would have never dreamed of in our childhood, our young adult years, you know. And uh, it's easy to get discouraged until we get into the word of God and we look at his promises. They encourage us. As we'll see here a little bit later, God does cause all things to work together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We need to give thanks for all things, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. God's got a plan. And guess what? All of human activities are going right down that plan for God. He's still in charge. Let's go on. Um, Verse 12. 
<clears throat> but we request you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord. Um, <clears throat> so he is going to use uh, three phrases here to um, identify what uh, the role of the pastor is within the church. And so he's telling us here in, in this verse that, um, uh, that we appreciate him. And he tells us how to do that. So the word here, appreciate, um, means to um, see with insight. That is, that we recognize their unique position. Who calls the pastor? Do churches call pastors? All right, God calls the pastor. He does. God uh, places him here. And so um, here we want to know, we see that Paul's saying that um, that he has a unique position, that he has placed them in your church. He places them there just for you. For such a time as you're going through. So he identifies them, first of all, by saying those who diligently labor among you. Now, um, I'm a retired pastor. And while I was a pastor, uh, I could hardly think of a work week being less than 60 hours. You know, that's just it just takes that much time. You know, that's what that's what it is to be a pastor uh, is that uh, the first thing here is that they labor among you. And um, uh, that's as I look at our pastor, Pastor Kerry, I don't think I've ever met anybody who works as hard as he does. You know, he labors among us. He certainly fulfills this description of what a pastor is. The second thing is, and have charge over you. Um, the word having charge over you is the one who presides or rules. And uh, so he is our spiritual leader. Um, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your soul. Now here he's specifically talking about spiritual leaders. They are those who watch over your soul. As those who will give an account and let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So the second thing we see is that they have charge over you. They have authority. They have spiritual authority. And by having spiritual authority, then we are called to submit to that authority. Because that's, that's what God's word says. You know, when I was a pastor, it was really hard for me to preach on these passages. Because, you know, I was saying, you've got to submit to me. Well, now I don't have to say that. You have to submit to your pastor. That's what God calls us to do. Um, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, it is a trustworthy statement. Okay, so what he's saying here. Now, listen up. This is very important about what I'm going to say. This is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. I think that God places that desire within a pastor who's called. You know, I can speak for myself. And when God called me into ministry, I couldn't do anything else. I didn't want to do anything else. God placed that desire within me. And uh, just as it says in, in this passage, is that, um, uh, that if any man aspires to the office of pastor or overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. So the work that your pastor does, that's a fine work that he's doing. And God calls us to, um, uh, it says right here in this passage, again, let me read it. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they watch over your soul as one who must give an account. And notice the last part of this. You know, when you submit to your pastor, it, in a way, it's kind of selfish. Because it goes on to say, let them do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So if you want it to be profitable for you, then he calls you to submit 
to your, to your uh, spiritual leaders. And the third description is, and gives you instruction. So the word here literally means to place before the mind. And so it's putting God's word and placing it before your mind. I think that's one of the primary duties of a pastor is placing God's word in your mind in such a way that you understand it and in such a way that you can apply it to your life. Uh, Verse 13, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. So he tells us to esteem them very highly, to put them in a prominent place into our lives, to lift them up. And um, again, I'm not saying that you have to like everything about your pastor. You don't have to like all of his sermons or what he's doing, but you need to esteem him very highly. You need to to respect him and you need to submit because that's what God's word says. And if you do, then it will go well with you and it'll be good for you. And he says, let them do this with joy, not grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. You want to have a profitable life, a spiritual life? Then make your pastor happy, okay? Let them do this with joy and not with grief. Uh, and then he says to do this because of their, because of their work. Now, um, I've been in, in ministry for a long time, so I've got a, a lot of experiences in ministry. And actually, I've gone through like two church splits, and those are never very fun. And uh, I can tell you, though, that um, when a congregation does not respect the pastor, then the work suffers. And so that's what he's saying right here. He says, because of their work. If you want the work of God to go forward, if you want the work of God to prosper, then a lot of that depends upon our attitude toward our spiritual leaders. Does that make sense? So anyway, he says this is another reason why we need to esteem them very highly in love is because of their work. Uh, And then he goes on to say, live in peace with one another. And I think that that is directly related to our relationship with our pastor and with one another within the church. So we want to live in peace with one another. Um, Let me, uh, uh, you know, there are times uh, when, you know, not every pastor is perfect. Uh, I know I wasn't a perfect pastor for sure. My wife can tell you that. And so can my kids, (laughs) but you know, uh, uh, a pastor doesn't have to be perfect. It's the office that we respect. Okay? And uh, so let's, let's keep doing that. Um, <clears throat> let me read uh, the qualification for a pastor from 1 Timothy 3. It says, It is a truthful statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife or a one-woman man. Temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil." He must have a good reputation with those who are outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So these are qualifications for a pastor. Um, Like I said, I I have gone through two church splits in my my experience as a pastor. Obviously, I'm not a perfect pastor. (laughs) But um, um, 
most of the accusations, well, I think probably 100% of the accusations that were brought uh, at me in order to try to remove me from office were not biblical reasons. So as we look at these uh, qualifications for a pastor or for an elder, then um, if, we, if we think we have a charge against a pastor, they first of all must be biblical. Okay, it can't be, well, I don't think his sermons were too long, <laughs> you know, or some other thing like that. But they have to be things that are actually biblical, okay? And then secondly, they must be done in peace. In Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 23, it says, But refuse foolish and ignorant speculation, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So if there does come a time that uh, a pastor or an elder um, fails to meet up the qualifications of his office, then there must be a time when he must be dealt with. But we must deal with them with this attitude of gentleness. You know, um, if we love our pastors, if we love one another, then confrontation should be hard. But they should always be done in love. We should always seek what is best for them because that's what God's love is. It's seeking the best for the object of your love. So even when it is time for them to go, we need to do this kind of thing in love. And, um, you know, there shouldn't be church splits. There shouldn't be quarrels among us. There shouldn't be fighting among Christians. We should be loving one another. And if we're not doing that, then there's something wrong and we need to look inside. And so, um, anyway, uh, he goes on in verse 14 and he says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the fainthearted, and help the weak. Be patient with everyone. So there are three groups of believers uh, that we need to deal with in uh, three different ways. The first group is to admonish the unruly. Uh, the word unruly means to be um, unorderly. And uh, so with them, we are to admonish them. This word admonish is the same word that is used in, in verse 12, which is translated give instruction. So the way that we deal with the unruly is we place before them the instruction of God's word. We look at their life and we see if it's, uh, if it's lining up with scripture and if it's not, then we need to bring the scriptures in light to their unruliness. So we confront them with the word of God. That's how we handle the unruly or the, uh, uh, those that are out of order. The second group is uh, encourage the faint-hearted. Uh, the word encourage means to speak kindly or soothingly. A faint-hearted person is someone who has a small soul, literally. Uh, they don't have much faith. Uh, they uh, don't have much room for God in their lives. They're faint-hearted. They don't need to be confronted. They need to be encouraged. The faint-hearted need to know the word of God and how it applies to their lives. But the faint-hearted need to be encouraged and not confronted. So the second group are those who have small souls, who are faint-hearted. And we need to encourage them, speak soothingly to him, lift them up. And then the third group is to help the weak. The, um, the word help means to hold close. And uh, the weak are those without strength. And so we need to hold close the weak. Um, <clears throat> we might call, I remember taking a counseling class once and referred to these people as VDPs. 
very draining people. <laughs> All right. And I don't know about you, but it's my natural tendency, my old nature tendency to push away draining people. You know, I don't want to be drained. But God says instead to hold them close. They need to be held close. Um, in Romans chapter 14, it says, um, now accept those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment or opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards another day above another, and another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced by his own mind. So those who are weak, then he says here, we're not to resent them, but we're to hold them close uh, instead. <clears throat> so verse 15, see that no one repays another evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Uh, <clears throat> So God's command here uh, to the congregation, first of all, is that we're not to give evil for evil. Peter says, do not give evil for evil, but give a blessing instead. So when someone does something wrong to us, then uh, we're obligated by Scripture to do something good for them. Um, I remember uh, my wife reminded me on Monday night, we had our life group and we were going through this passage. And she reminded me of an incident that happened at our first church uh, we had grown a garden back in behind the church. We lived in a parsonage, and so they had some land behind the, the church, and we had a garden back there. And, and uh, you know, in Oregon, uh, it grows a lot of weeds. And uh, anyway, they were going to put a drain field through there uh, where our garden was. And so anyway, without talking to us or anything, uh, one of the deacons uh, had his weed whacker out there and went right through our garden. And at the time, we were raising these big pumpkins for our kids. Oh, they just loved these pumpkins. Carmine. We had these pumpkins, I think, were about this big around. They were huge. Well, they just went through our garden and just whacked them all up, you know. And our kids went out there and, and they came back crying, you know, because their pumpkins had destroyed. And, and I don't know, maybe the weeds were so high and he didn't see it. I don't know. Just give them the benefit of the doubt. I, I don't know. But anyway, so, um, so anyway, they are, I mean, our whole family just, just was in, suffering because of what he had done to, uh, to our pumpkins. And, and uh, so anyway, we talked about it. And so uh, we tried to teach our children that, you know, people are never our enemies. Sometimes they fall into the snare of the devil and he uses them, but they are never our enemies. The devil is our enemy, okay? Uh, but people are not. We're to love people. Um, and so we looked at this passage in First Peter chapter 3 where it says, Do not give curse for curse but in, or insult for insult, but give a blessing instead. So as a family, we decided that we needed to bless this family uh, who had come through and wiped out our pumpkins. And so uh, we went to the store and at the time... Um, um, the church wasn't really paying us a salary. We didn't really have very much money, but we just felt like we needed to make a sacrifice to, to bless this, this family. So we went and we bought these blueberry bushes. And I mean, they were, I mean, their garden didn't look like our garden. I didn't have a weed. I don't, I think a weed would be afraid to grow in their garden. Okay. Uh, but uh, anyway, so we bought them these uh, blueberry bushes and we went to the front door and knocked on the door and and, uh, you know, we just said, hey, we just come and we'd like to bless you with these plants. And so we gave them the plants and, you know, we got in the car. And, and you know what? I'm not sure that ever affected their lives at all. But you know what it did to us? We were healed. You know, it did us good to do that. 
And so uh, in the same way here, he says, don't return evil for evil. You know, instead, uh, always seek after that which is good for one another. So when someone does something evil to you, that is an opportunity for you to show what Christ is like. I know that our nature wants to do what they did and do it worse. <laughs> we want to teach them a lesson so they never do that again. You know, that's that's that old nature. But God says, instead, give a blessing. That is going to give you the great opportunity to show what Jesus is like. There can be hardly any greater opportunity for witness for you than when someone does you evil and you return it with something good. So, um, verse 16, um, he says, rejoice always. Now, this is not a, uh, a suggestion. This is a command. Um, so, therefore, it shows me something that uh, rejoicing is not a feeling. It's something we choose to do. You know, it's kind of like salvation or being saved or faith. Faith is not a feeling. It's not an ability. It's a choice. When we accept Jesus Christ, we don't do it um, because or, or people that reject Jesus Christ don't reject him because they can't believe. They're rejecting him because they're making a choice to reject him. If you're here tonight and you've never accepted, well, you, obviously you are here tonight if you're here tonight. But anyway, if you have not accepted Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, it's not because you don't, you don't have, you can't. It's because you're choosing not to. You're choosing not to submit to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But I will tell you, if you will accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your life will be changed forever. He will give you that new saved mind. He will change you from the inside out. He will do a miracle in your life. But anyway, uh, rejoicing is also a choice. Now, how do we uh, rejoice in times of pain? I mean, we've all gone through times of pain. There's times that we feel like crying. But did you know that you can rejoice and cry at the same time? You see, rejoicing is a choice. Rejoicing is simply trusting God in the time of your pain. You're rejoicing that God is in charge and he loves you enough that he's allowing you to go through this opportunity to suffer for Christ. You see, we choose to suffer for Christ when we go through painful events with the right mindset. When we're choosing to see, God, I have faith in you. I know that you are a good God, that I am your child, and you are doing this for my good. We talked about this at Life Group the other night, and we're talking about taking our children uh, to the dentist. I remember once we were at camping, and my daughter, she um, was going through the stream, and she stepped on a sharp rock and just slid open the bottom of her foot. So we took her to the ER, and uh, she was laying there just in a lot of pain. My daughter has a unique way of expressing pain. And uh, anyway, she was uh, in a lot of pain. And I remember holding her foot while the doctor put that needle in that cut to put the Novocaine in so he could sew it up. And so here I was holding her down so the doctor could cause her more pain. What a cruel dad, right? No. You know, I, I was doing that, a short-term painful event for a long-term outcome. And that's what God does when we go through difficult times. No suffering is there is useless. It's not because God's out of control or God doesn't love you. Of course he loves you. He loves you so much he sent his son to die for you. But he will allow you to go through pain. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. 
You know, he allows hardships to come upon us. And rejoicing in that hardship is trusting God through it all and saying, God, thank you. I don't feel thankful, but I am choosing to give thanks to you because I know you're going to use this for my good. I remember one time I was going through a hard time in my life and I know that God works all things together. And I remember telling God, God, I know you work all things together, but frankly, I don't like your good. You know, and I didn't. But by faith, I knew he was doing it for my good, even though it hurt. I was like my daughter screaming on that operation operating table. You know, uh, it hurt. But, you know, that's God does let us go through difficult times. But he's doing it to conform us into the image of his son. So we can choose to rejoice in the midst of pain. And so he says, rejoice always, even when it hurts. Choose to give God glory. Have faith that you know that God knows what he's doing. He's got you right where he wants you. And he's got something good that's going to come out on the end of that. And then uh, verse 17, he says, pray without ceasing. Again, uh, this is a present imperative. And he says, just keep on praying. You know, um, have you ever felt like uh, giving up praying? Have you ever prayed for things? And I mean, you've prayed and you prayed and you prayed, maybe for years. And you're thinking, God... Why aren't you answering? You know, I don't know why God waits. I remember praying for my brother for 40 years. And, but finally, after 40 years, at my mom's funeral, he accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior. He became a changed man overnight, just like that. You know, it took 40 years for me to pray. And I don't know. I'm sure other people were praying. I know my mom was praying for him. My sister was praying for him. But, you know, um, I don't know why God doesn't answer prayer right away. And sometimes God answers prayer by saying no you know he is a very intelligent god he knows what he's doing and uh, so he says here uh, pray without ceasing just keep on praying you know we have a prayer meeting and this is a shameless plug i guess we have a prayer meeting on monday mornings at six o'clock you're all welcome fill up the room make us move into here all right and we've been praying now for about three or four years and i've been praying for revival and I haven't seen much revival happen around here lately. Has anybody seen any revival? I'd like to see some myself. But you know what? I'm going to keep coming and praying. You know, let me just tell you something here, okay? We don't necessarily obey God for the right results. We obey God out of obedience. We obey God out of faith, okay? Can you trust God enough to just keep on praying? You know, when Jesus was teaching about prayer in uh, Luke, uh, he uh, talked about the unjust judge and how this widow came to him day after day after day, asking for deliverance from her creditors or whoever it was. I can't remember exactly. And uh, so uh, finally, the judge says, "Okay, I'm going to give this woman not because I want to, but because I'm tired of her coming before me. And then he uses that as an illustration for persevering in prayer. And at the very end of that, he says something very significant. He says, Will the Lord find faith on the earth when he comes? In other words, will he find you still praying when he comes? Will he still find you praying for that prodigal daughter or son? Will he still find you praying when you see no results? Will he still find you praying out of faith, knowing that you are doing what pleases God? Do you know that God delights in the prayer of the upright? Do you know that? And that is, I think, I find that so significant that me, Fred Butcher, puny little guy down here on planet Earth, can cause God delight. Isn't that amazing? 
And all I have to do is talk to him. He delights in the prayer of the upright. So if there's no other purpose for prayer than to delight God, then what's wrong with that? So he goes on to say here, uh, pray without ceasing. Verse 18. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. You know what the word everything means in Greek? (laughs) Everything. In everything give thanks. Are you having problems on the job? Give thanks. Give thanks for everything. Are you having problems with your kids? Give thanks. You know, just give thanks to God. You know, you may not understand why God's doing what he's doing, but you can thank God he's in charge. You can thank God he's got a plan. You you can thank God he knows what he's doing. You can thank God that he loves you and is choosing the very best for you. So give thanks in all things, for this is the will of God. You want to do the will of God? Then give thanks. It's God's will for you to give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Uh, Verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Now, quenching the spirit is like pouring cold water on the fire. You know, it quenches it. And uh, when we uh, quench the spirit, it's it's when we are quenching spiritual enthusiasm. When the spirit of God is building up enthusiasm in other people. And we'll say, we've tried that before. It won't work. You know, or uh, we've never done it that way before. I remember one time uh, when I was in the ministry, we had these pastors meeting and we'd go to this pastor. We'd have these meetings as one pastor always came. And I always thought that um, uh, that he had the gift of discouragement. <laughs> it didn't matter what idea we came up with. There was always something wrong with it. I mean, I think he just carried around a bucket of cold water to, you know, to quench any fire that would ever get going. But anyway, he says here, quench not the spirit. You know, we don't have to walk around with our like this all the time, you know, say that's not going to work, you know, and, and just quench any good idea that's going on. Encourage people. Don't quench the spirit. Verse 20. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Now, you're probably asking, well, what are prophetic utterances? Well, um, you know, some people have teach that, um, uh, that the gift of prophecy is no longer relevant for today. Uh, that once the canon of the New Testament was completed, then we didn't need the gift of prophecy because we have the New Testament. We have the Word of God. I think that's a, a wonderful theory, uh, but I think that's all it is, is a theory, because I can't find anywhere in Scripture that supports that idea. So I believe that the gift of prophecy, um, I, I don't, you know, I think it's very rare, just like it was in Scripture. I think one time I went through the whole Bible and I looked at miracles and to see how many miracles took place in, in the Scriptures. And I think I figured out that if you averaged out all the time that the Scripture was written and all the miracles that were recorded in the Bible, that you had about one miracle a century. Okay? So, um, you know, we, we look back and we look at these these clusters of miracles and think that's the way it should all be. We should have all these miracles, but actually miracles were fairly rare, even in the Bible. Um, but, um, but what about this, the prophecy here? Well, I was kind of challenged by this at one time, and I thought, because you know, this guy came in, and he says, I got this prophecy for you, and he told me this prophecy, and well, you know, it was a very interesting little story he told, but I wasn't sure it was a prophecy from God. And so I began to really pray about it and study the scriptures and try to figure out, well, how do I know when a prophecy is God? And then I happened upon a passage of scripture in Leviticus. <laughs> it's Leviticus, okay? You might think, well, I never get anything out of Leviticus. But anyway, it's part of the law. And one of the things that he says in there is he says that when a person brings an accusation against another, he has to bring one or two witnesses. And I thought, okay, Lord, that's my answer. 
If you're going to speak to me through a prophetic utterance of someone, then I'd like to have two or three witnesses that are totally independent of one another. So in other words, this guy over here says, comes and he says, I got a prophecy for you. I listen to the prophecy and, you know, I'm not going to think anything about it unless somebody from over here that I have no contact with this guy over here, he comes and tells me the same thing. And so I figure, okay, God, if you require one or two three, uh, witnesses from us, then what I'm going to require that from you. I, I don't think that's blasphemous or anything. That's what you require. So I think that's a good trade. What do you guys think about that? Think that's all right? So anyway, I've, since then, I don't think I've ever had anybody that has done that. So I've never heard one of those kind of utterances. Now, I do still believe that God speaks to us prophetically, and, uh, but I think that it needs to come in a situation like that. Um, I think, uh, let's see how many more verses I have here. Okay, um, I'll just tell you just one incident that happened to me. And um, you can just, you know, if you think this is from God, that's fine. If you don't, I'm okay with that as well. But I'll just tell you this is what happened, all right? But um, anyway, we were having prayer time at my last church, and we prayed four, day, four mornings um, every week. Uh, we'd pray for at least an hour, and we got up early in the morning, and we'd meet. And we usually had about a dozen people coming to these prayer meetings. And so God began to do some pretty neat things during that time of our lives. And um, so anyway... Um, we came one morning, and uh, this one person said, you know, I had this really weird dream. And he told us weird his dream, and, and I thought, you know, I had a real weird dream, too. And I said, here, I'll tell you mine. So I, I told my dream. I said, in my dream, I saw this person, and they had their chin right on the table, just like this, you know. And uh, the scorpion came up and started stinging him right in the mouth. And pretty soon, the mouth swollen up and closed, and the scab grew over it, and then it healed, and there was no mouth left. You know, I just thought that I must have eaten some pizza or something last night, you know. But anyway, it was just a weird dream. Well, this gal right on the left of me, standing right there, her face just turned white. She said, that's me. She said, I've been sharing about what God's been doing in our prayer time here. And every time I share, people criticize me. So last night I said, I'm not going to share anymore. Now, again, I think that dream was for that girl, you know, for that gal. That uh, he wanted to encourage her to keep sharing and giving witness of what God was doing in our lives. So anyway, if that was a prophetic utterance or prophetic, I don't know. But you, you can judge for yourself. But uh, anyway, that's, that happened. And I can just share it with you. Um, <clears throat> let's see. So he goes on to say, uh, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. So... Um, um, he says, examine everything carefully. So, uh, in other words, uh, if somebody comes to you with a prophecy or you hear a, a, an evangelist who says he's a prophet, then uh, there's three ways of examining him. Okay, first of all, you can look at the Word of God. Is what he is saying, does it line up with Scripture? Okay, that's number one. Number two, um, <clears throat> you can do what I, I, I did, you know. Just say, Lord, I'll believe this if you come with another source totally independent of that source and I'll, I'll believe it's from you and thirdly you can go to your spiritual leaders and get counsel okay so there's three those are three ways that i suggest that you examine everything so and he goes on to say and he hold fast to that which is good it's interesting that this word here is moral goodness before we had another word uh, he talked about good and it was about benevolent good but this here is a different word it is moral good and um, he says to examine everything carefully. And in other words, actually, literally to examine by fire everything that is said here. But hold fast to that which is good. Um, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> so um, if we don't hold fast 
to things that are morally good, then we will become loose people, morally loose. We have to hold it fast. The idea of holding fast here is to hold it firmly. We need to hold firmly moral goodness. You can't let it slip from your grasp. You have to hold it fast. That's what he's telling us here. Um, Verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. In uh, the previous chapter, in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 3, it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, you abstain from sexual immorality. So um, we need <coughs> to hold every form of evil away from us. Um, <coughs> and uh, some uh, translations say here, uh, all appearances of evil. So um, even if it appears to be evil, I mean, even if it's not, not evil, but appears to be evil, then we need to abstain from it. So hold fast to that which is good. And the word hold fast is an intensified word. It means to hold on tightly. It's like um, when you're at the top of a roller coaster. You need, you know, you've gone up, you're really slow, you, you know, going, going up, you know. And then you get to the top, and then you take a death grip on that thing, all right? So that's kind of what he's saying here, is hold fast to that which is good. Um, <clears throat> Verse 23, now may the peace, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved completely without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's really interesting that he says, now may God of peace himself. You know who sanctifies us? It's God himself who sanctifies us. Sometimes... um, we think that we have to hold on to God so that we'll be blameless. Or we have to, hold, we have to do all of this work and hang on and hang on. Well, we do have to hold on. But um, let me give you an illustration. Uh, when my children were little and I would take them shopping, then when we got in the store, I would make them hold on to my finger. You know, they, their hands were so little they couldn't hold on to much else, but I'd make them hold on to my finger. And the reason I did that is, is I told them, that if you let go of my finger, then I will discipline you. Because I had tried to hold on to their hand, and uh, because my grip is tighter than theirs, then I can hold on to them, and they can fight and pull away as hard as they can. But if they have to hold on my finger, then they can only pull enough so they don't pull their hand away from my finger. And so I would, inside the store, I would just let them hold my finger. But you know, when we got out in the parking lot, it was just the opposite way. When they're out in the parking lot where there's cars driving around, I'm going to hold on to that kid. You know, the same thing is true when it comes to our spiritual lives here. Is yes, we need to hold on to that which is good. It's like us holding on to our father's finger. You know, holding on tight enough and not pulling away so that we let go. But you know, when God gets us out into the parking lot, when it comes to eternal security, then he's got a hold of our hand. And he's not going to let go. He's got a strong hand. It's impossible for him to let go. And so he holds on to us. And so that's what he's talking about. Now may God of peace himself um, <clears throat> sanctify you entirely. And uh, may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved completely because he has a hold of our hand. So uh, verse 24, faithful is he who calls you and uh, he also will bring it to pass. Remember, he's got a hold of our hand. He is faithful. Our salvation rests upon his faithfulness, not our abilities, but his. Um, <clears throat> Verse 25, brethren, pray for us. You know, as, as uh, powerful as Paul was, starting all these churches, standing before rulers and Caesars, uh, he realized that he needed prayer. 
He was weak, but God made him strong. So he says, pray for us. You know, if you think you're strong enough to get by without people praying for you, uh, then I don't think you're looking at reality. So Paul says, pray for us, so we need to pray for one another. Verse 26, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Um, I've been to France several times, and as an American, I'm just a little bit embarrassed when they come up and kiss me on each cheek. But evidently, that was their culture. In our culture, I think it would be give a strong handshake or give a hug. But anyway, greet one another. Uh, you know, love one on one another. Have brotherly love for each other. 27, I adjure you by the Lord to have this uh, letter read to all the brethren. The word adjure here is a very strong word. And I think what he's saying is get into God's word. Let God's word be read to you. Um, verse 28, the grace of the Lord be with you, um, of Christ Jesus be with you. And again, I want you to notice it's the Lord. He's the master. It's Jesus. He's our savior. He's Christ, the anointed one who came to save us from our sins. So God's unmerited favor is with us. God is indeed for us and not against us. He freely gives us his favor lavished upon us. Let's pray. Father God, again, we're just thankful for your word and uh, just thank you for the encouragement of it. Lord, again, we just want to pray for uh, Shelby and the baby, and we pray for the family that you give them your comfort and you'd watch over during this difficult time. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.
Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.